Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons. It's been four long weeks since our last episode was published, and for that I apologize. It seems that when the end of the semester comes, and there are final exams to be written and final exams to be graded, and end of the semester paperwork to be completed, that there is simply not enough time for me to get the podcast episodes published as promptly as I would like. And so moving forward, I think we're going to have to expect that when the semesters conclude in May and December, there's going to be more than a two-week gap between episodes, as I simply cannot complete my academic duties and get these podcasts published in a timely manner. Nonetheless, your listenership is greatly appreciated, and I'm delighted that you've downloaded this episode in which we are going to talk about DC motors. Whenever one offers a tutorial like this, there is always the possibility of making an error. And that's a very real possibility that somewhere in this hour and a half episode, a technical error or three have been made. And so if you're a motor expert, uh, feel free to let us know. We'll try to correct any mistakes we may have made in future episodes. Or if we've completely gotten it wrong, uh, feel free to volunteer to uh, come on the show and uh, set us straight. So sit back, enjoy the show, and hopefully we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the Engineering Commons. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 130, DC Motors, May 8, 2017. So, Carmen, what gets your motor going? Well, Jeff, I'm a man of both fine and exotic taste, so that's uh, something for a less family-family podcast. <laughs> but if you're talking electromechanically, um, you know, I always have to say uh, electricity or uh, sugar. Electricity or sugar, that's, that's quite a combination. Now, there are those who argue about what is the difference between a motor and an engine. And uh, at least one definition I've seen says that motors convert electricity or electrical power to mechanical power, and engines convert chemical power to mechanical power. So sugar would seem to me that would be an engine and not a motor. Oh, now we're splitting hairs. (laughs) The body digests (laughs) sugars way faster than fats, so maybe fats are the engine. Right. Now, if you have a lot of sugar before bedtime, does this keep you up? No. Yeah. No. I mean, maybe a cup of coffee like right before bed, but, you know, a couple hours before I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't have a cutoff time of like, ooh, it's four o'clock. It's almost, I won't sleep tonight. Yeah, sure. Fill yeah. me up. You can always chase that coffee with vodka. <laughs> well, it's time to go to an Irish coffee. <laughs> oh, I do love that. That was my Easter brunch. Right. Well, I, I haven't gotten to the point where sugar keeps me up, but uh, coffee will. Uh, for instance, this evening I am sipping on half-calf for fear that uh, full caffeine would keep me up way past midnight. So <laughs> That's just cheater's coffee. Well, yeah, that's true. So this discussion of motors in particular leads us to the topic we wanted to uh, cover this evening, 
after last week's discussion of noticing and, uh, you know, a few esoteric type concepts of mindfulness and discussions of meditation, uh, we decided that we really needed to plow back into something a little meatier, a little more technical. And so in this episode, we thought we'd talk about electrical motors, most particularly uh, direct current uh, motors. So in my training as a mechanical engineer, we occasionally had to do a few things with motors. And, and now that I'm teaching a mechatronics course, then virtually everybody in that course has to play around with some DC motors at times. Uh, what about you electrical guys? Did you have to do anything with electrical motors as part of your engineering education? A little. It was part of a controls course. I mean, there was some basic motor theory, but uh, mm-hmm. in terms of applications, it was you know part of experimental setups and uh, learning about PID loops and things like that. Uh, I did a lot more in industry with motors than I ever did at the university level. Hmm. Okay. What about you, Carmen? No, not really. I had the basic E&M courses and in a, um, a mechatronics course. That's the word I'm looking for, which covered the basics of motors, but both were train wrecks for different reasons, and I came away with <laughs> no knowledge of motors. Okay. Other than apply the electricity and a shaft starts spinning. But uh, That's the nice thing about motors is they're not that complicated. <laughs> unless you're Wait, building what? them from scratch. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And then I That's went right. to the semiconductor uh, industry, which is known for having no moving parts. So I just still don't know anything about motors. Right. Right. Well, now I, I heard that uh, that bit of amazement on the part of Brian. And, and indeed, any one of these subjects, you are right, Brian. We can go dar- down the rabbit hole and spend hours and hours on, on the mo- most minute of uh, areas uh, on motor control because there's so many of them out there. But <laughs> In general, at the top level, they're not so complicated. Oh, motor control is simple compared to actual motor design as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, Motor design, from my point of view, is somewhere between, you know, black magic and, uh, (laughs) you know, regular magic. We'll just leave it in the general magic category. I mean, I can hand wave all about, you know, back and forth about you know, movement of fluxes and fields, but, you know, I know enough to be amazed by the analysis that goes into motor design. Right. Yeah. But, and and I, you don't know how much of the final design was calculated <laughs> the first time around and how much was, well, we just played with it until uh, it seemed to work the way we wanted it to. I have actually seen a talk by a... um a very veteran motor designer, which there are very mm-hmm. few. Mm-hmm. It's there's there's more math than guesswork. Okay, which Good. is why it's you know it's 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 quite impressive. Okay. I get the impression there's not a lot of motor designers in the U.S., but that may not be entirely true these days. Who knows? Hmm. So if it's all math, why can't you just make a computer program, plug this stuff in, and it spits it out? Well, a lot of things you can do that. No engineer required. A lot, a lot of things you can do that, but as with anything simulation related, it's ninety percent of it is trying to figure out when the math is lying to you or when the simulations are lying to you. Yeah, yeah. So, and so, Adam, did you have to do anything with motors in school? Um, not in college. Uh, a little okay. bit in like physics, I guess. But no, uh, we like things that don't move in general, except the cars. 
What about automating your brewery? Oh, lots of motor work there, yeah. But it's buy the motor and, and build a control system. And by build, I mean attach control system A off-shelf to motor B off-shelf. Nice, nice. <laughs> and then fix motor B a lot. If it's anything like transformer design, it's uh, pretty dark arts type stuff. I've attended a few presentations by people who've won their own transformers and, you know, it, it gets pretty crazy pretty quickly. And part of the problem is what, you know, uh, there's no one magic program to design motors because you can design for so many different things. Do you want power efficiency? Do you want low end torque? Do you want high end torque? Do you want speed? Uh, do you want it to fit, uh, you know, more like a pancake motor flat? Uh, do you want it to be long and cylindrical? Are you trying to control speed or position? <laughs> yes. All, all those things. And then, you, you know, is you want AC or DC or they're just, there are so many motors out there. Do you I'm want just, to turn or do you want to push? <laughs> Seriously, it's a real question. Right. So we're going to go through a, uh, a quick summary uh, this evening of DC motors. Uh, I am not a DC motor expert. Uh, I do not even play one on TV, but I know enough of the basics to sort of, I hope, I think, uh, guide everyone through a sort of a hand-waving mind exercise of, of how a DC uh, motor operates. And so maybe uh, for those of the, you that are not familiar with DC motor operation, you'll have a better understanding at the end. And those of you that are experts, you will be screaming at your, uh, at your podcast playback device going, you idiot. That is not the correct way to explain it. In which case, uh, send us an email, uh, contact page, and let us know when you'd like to come on because we're always glad to have experts in the field of engineering come in and, and uh, talk about their area of expertise. And with that long list of credentials, that makes Jeff the guru for this podcast. Nominated by default. Ha! Ha, ha, ha. All right. Okay. Well, so let us talk about motors. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, we will go with the definition that motors convert electrical power into mechanical power. And uh, we may have... Electric motors that are AC or DC, in general, AC motors rely on alternating current to establish desired mag magnetic fields, uh, while DC motors use direct current. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit about the difference between AC and DC motors. Yeah, there's a lot of good app notes here. I'm looking at one by uh, MPS, Monolithic Power Supplies. It goes over mm -hmm. some basics. Yes, there's, there's, there's no shortage of information about motors out there on the web. Yeah. I, I Googled motor app note and just started clicking around. The hardest part is getting through the nomenclature. Everybody uses different, you know, a different symbol to re represent magnetic flux or a different symbol to re represent um, uh, back EMF. Uh, and so the, the, the hardest thing is when you're trying to sort all this out, why everybody's not using the same term and the same symbols, but they don't. Because that's no fun. <laughs> Maybe we'll sort some of that out tonight. So anyway, uh, let's start out with the, the basic thing is we are indeed converting electrical power into mechanical power. Uh, we'll be talking primarily here about rotational motors, so into rotational mechanical power. Uh, but the obvious thing is that there is always some energy loss in the conversion. Hence, uh, the energy that we put into the system or the power we put into the system will always be greater than the power uh, we take out of the system. And if that's not, well, collect your Nobel Prize. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, 
All we right, should also so- we should also say the motor that we are not dealing with is would be called a linear motor, uh, and they're more used more often than you'd expect. But you know, it is a kind of brushless DC motor. Yeah, and generally, and, and so and, and so basically, a linear motor is just a rotary motor that you've folded unfolded yeah you've you've slid it along one side you've unfolded and then i guess you've unfolded many of them and stacked them one to the next uh and and stretched them out along a, a linear distance so uh, most of the concepts that we're going to talk about uh certainly apply to linear motors uh, mm-hmm. we'll just uh, just to try to simplify this a little bit we'll stick to rotational yes. motors in this discussion okay so uh motors we have DC motors and we have AC motors. And we talked about using AC current to establish a magnetic field or DC uh, current to establish a magnetic field. So in the, those two big categories, DC motors come in two basic flavors, brushed and brushless. And AC motors come in two big categories known as synchronous and induction or what's known as asynchronous. So I'll quickly uh, flash through the AC motors to get that out of the way before we move on to the DC. So in the AC motors, you typically have AC current coming in, usually three-phase. Uh, and what you're doing is you have magnets on the rotational part of the motor, uh, which would be the rotor. Uh, so in, in motors, we have uh, two parts. The part that rotates, normally the shaft, is the rotor. Uh, the part that stays stationary is known as the stator. Uh, the part that holds the everything together is called the frame. Uh, and so in an AC motor, you are applying... Real creative naming conventions. <laughs> yes. Listen, it's as good as electrical engineers can do. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, we, we would typically find uh, in a synchronous motor a, a windings going around the outside that is in the stator. Uh, we're applying our three phases, typically three phase, 60 degrees out of phase. Is it 60 degrees or is it 120 degrees? Uh, divide, divide by three. I guess it's 120 degrees. I saved at least one person from having a meltdown. That creates magnetic fields and the permanent magnets on the rotor are attracted to the changing magnetic fields. Anyway, the idea is that, that because uh, typically, the AC power that you have coming in is a particular frequency. You have a particular frequency at which the magnetic field, uh, you can think of it, you know, say at 12 o'clock, and depending on which direction you take the phase, it the magnetic field, basically you get a magnetic field that goes from noon until 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 to 5, just around the clock, right? You can set, you set this thing up, and the magnetic pole on the outside chases around. And you may have several of these. Actually, you may have several magnetic poles operating at once. Uh, but then the, mag- the permanent magnets on the rotor are attracted to that. And so they follow at the same speed. And so you have some speed at which the magnetic poles chase around the outside on, in the stator. And then the rotor will chase around with the same speed on the inside. And so this is called a synchronous motor because you have the rotor rotation synchronized with these windings on the outside it should be noted that uh this invention was i believe the primary contribution of tesla to the world um a lot of people i think if i if i have my tesla history correct 
assume that it was simply polyphase electricity that he invented. But evidently that invented, that was existed well before Tesla got involved, but his primary contribution was making a motor that worked on polyphase lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a three-phase, four-pole AC induction motor. So he, mm-hmm. actually his motor then, it was an induction motor, not a synchronous motor. Ah. So let's talk, the other main phase of AC motors is induction motors, or asynchronous. And so in this, we have the same sort of thing where around the outside we have have these windings and we're we're chasing the phase in a circle but in the rotor connection uh, we have bars that are positioned away from the uh, center of the rotation and the moving magnetic field cutting through these conductors that are are designed so that they have a closed loop there's a closed electrical circuit across these bars through the other side that creates a current uh, in the bars the current in the magnetic field creates this force and so you start to get the rotation of this system. And so in the induction motor or asynchronous motor, the rotor can never turn as fast as the, the pole on the outside. So you'll have, say, a, a set frequency on the outside, and then the, uh, the rotor will attempt to pull along as quickly. But as you add more and more load, it will start to slow down a little bit. Now it doesn't slow down vastly. It doesn't like, not like a factor of two, but by a factor of some number of percent. Uh, and this percentage of what we call slip gives us an idea of just uh, the difference between the, the speed at which the pole is being rotated on the outside in the stator uh, and the speed that the rotor is actually turning. And so uh, it's a, a typical number is like 5%. And, and you can design the system to have low slippage to be pretty stiff uh, in response to the load. Uh, but if you have something that, that is really a, a shock load or you don't want to send all that shock back to the system, you may have a higher slip, something like 10%. So uh, that's the, the basic AC motor side. And AC motors are used more in industry uh, because they have a couple of things going from them. Uh, that is, they're simple design. They have a high power factor, they have a long life, and they're good for fixed speed applications. And oftentimes in manufacturing and industry, we have something that, you know, a line that's running at the same speed hour after hour. Something needs to be mixed or pumped at the same speed hour after hour. So the cons, why would you not use AC motor control? Uh, more complex control because you're having to deal with the things on a frequency basis instead of a voltage basis. Uh, poor low speed performance and poor position control. Now, all that being said, uh, this is an area that is constantly under development. Manufacturers of AC motors are constantly improving their technology. You know, the electronics are getting cheaper. Uh, and so there is becoming more and more of a melding and emerging and, an, you know, the, the features of a DC motors crossing over to AC motors and AC motors crossing over to DC motors. And, you know, if you, if you're going to make any kind of buying decision, you know, go talk to your uh, motor manufacturer because there's all kinds of wonderful devices out there to uh, uh, to simplify motor control. All right, so to the heart of today's topic, that is DC motors. So we have the two main categories, brushed and brushless. We'll start in with brushed first and work our way into brushless. Uh, but before we go too far, let me go ahead and compare that with AC motors. So compared to AC motors, DC motors have a very simple control. That is, it has two inputs, two lines. You apply a voltage across it, it goes, 
right? Very simple. Uh, they're inexpensive. You go to look at any toy that has a, you know, a motor on it, it will be a DC motor, not an AC motor. Most usually a brush DC motor because those are cheaper than brushless. And they're great for variable speed applications because you want to vary the speed, you just vary the voltage into it. Couldn't be easier. Uh, so what's the downside? They tend to have a shorter lifespan than AC motors. Uh, they have higher maintenance costs. And they're limited to lower power applications. Now, obviously, over time, uh, some manufacturers have very huge, large DC motors. This is not, uh, this is a generalization, but, but in, you know, overall, uh, DC motors tend to be better suited towards low power applications and AC motors better to high power applications. And I'd suspect some of that has to do with the availability of, uh, AC power versus DC power. Well, that's part of it, but also commutators get messy with really because you're constantly opening and closing a circuit yeah so so that will be a problem with brushed motors dc motors yes but but yes but brushless in fact brushless dc motors are starting to move into ac motors in certain points because they don't have that uh, those those brushes indeed uh, and most of my experience in industry was using brushless dc motors okay most positioning is done with either a brushless DC or a stepper. Right. Right. And, and we'll talk, and if I forget, remind me at the end, but we'll talk a little bit about stepper because that's sort of a, that is a brushless motor, but that's sort of a different type of uh, brushless yeah. motor. Okay. So, uh, history wise, you know, where are we here? We are, you know, 2017. Uh, so we're coming up about 200 years since the first idea of this motor was invented. And, and I was just reminding my students, uh, uh, in a lecture this past week about, uh, we were talking about state space and the idea of observability and state space control and the fact that, uh, Kalman had come forward with these papers presenting these ideas about 1960. Uh, and, uh, for me, that's a lifetime for some of you, multiple lifetimes, but, you know, we always think about these engineering theories and, and, uh, techniques and understandings as though they were here since the beginning of time. And they're not, they, they're, we're, you know, we're constantly developing new understanding and our interpretation of the old understanding is changing and our tools for, uh, implementing that stuff is changing. Uh, and so, uh, I always want engineers to understand that, uh, it's not that, you know, the, we so often act as though that all the information is in the textbook and the textbooks came from heaven and were handed down to us. And if we just memorize the textbooks, we know how to be engineers. And that's not the case. We're constantly having to uh, reinvent methods and techniques and tools uh, to meet our new and changing desires and, and production goals uh, and, and the changing times that we live in. Is it actually 100 years since the brush DC motor was invented? Uh, Michael Faraday, back in 1821, uh, produced electromagnetic rotation. And that basically, he had a, a wire hanging into mercury, and he got the mm -hmm. wire to swing around in a circle. So that's sort of seen as the beginning of the common DC motor. Uh, and then about a decade later, Joseph Henry built an electromagnetic motor, and we'll put motor in quotes. It was really a rocker. And so by reversing electric poles, electromagnetic uh, magnets, he could make this thing rock back and forth at about one and a quarter hertz. You could churn butter with that. Yes, you could, right? So it had it's had some application. And so it was left to uh, William Sturgeon in 1832, a year later, who invented the commutator, which you mentioned earlier, Brian, and hence the rotary electric motor. So 
you know, we're what, 185 years? Almost 200 years. Yeah. Coming up, getting close to 200 years since this. Since Faraday, anyways, we're almost 200 years. Yeah. So, DC Motors. Um, and, and I'm going to, until we get to brushless, I'm going to speak specifically about brushed DC motors uh, mm-hmm. uh, so that we don't have to keep saying brushed DC motors every time. Now, what's the brush okay, made so, out of? Horsehair, badger? What are we talking? Isn't it uh, carbon? Uh, it, it can be made out of uh, carbon or precious metals or copper graphite, which I guess would be graphite being carbon. Or chemical engineers. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So uh, so our, let's start with the – from the outside. Let's look at the DC motor from the outside before we dive into how it works on the inside. For, so from the outside, DC motors are easy to control. If you want to make it go faster, you apply more voltage. So you apply some voltage, you know, 9-volt battery, 10-volt battery, 3-volt battery, whatever. You want it to go faster, apply more voltage, it goes faster. And And only to make a – I mean, you're right. But just to nitpick because, I don't know, we can do that. You're actually applying more current because the thing that's active in this case is the current that's going through the coil increase, it has, uh, increases the size of the field available to push the rotor around. Yes, indeed. And we shall get there shortly. <laughs> so I'm jumping ahead, Brian. Yes. So, so we can uh, apply more voltage to make it go faster, and we can, if we want it to go in the other direction, we just reverse the leads, turn it around, and make it go the other way. Now, this becomes an issue for anybody who's tried to build a robot or a quadcopter. Well, quadcopters aren't so bad because they speed up and and slow down, so that's somewhat an issue. But they normally you don't have to reverse directions on the props. Quadcopters, if I'm not wrong, are also brush DC motor, brushless DC motors. They, they do that because they last longer and they have less weight. Yep. Um, but so to – Assuming your drone plugs in for now, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so to drive these things, if you want to drive something to drive forward and you want it to drive backwards, you need an H-bridge. And so this is a, a – I can't tell you how many student projects I've been involved with where the students go, hey, I've got a, I've got a controller to control the signal and I've got a motor and now what do I do? Relays. And that's essentially what an H-bridge is. We're just using – typically, we use transistors as the relays. But if you can imagine a configuration in which you have uh, four transistors or four switches or relays, whatever you want, uh, we'll, we'll position them as, as the corners of a square. So we can have upper left, upper right, lower left, lower right. And then we'll uh, connect the – from the top above the upper uh, relays, we'll connect downward from – power, let's say 12 volts, into those uh, relays. And then from the output of those relays, uh, we'll come down and make a connection left and right, you know, from the verticals into the motor. It's the crossbar on the H, basically. The crossbar on the H, that's right. And then from, from those motors, we'll again connect left and right side of the motor down to the next two, the lower left and lower right relays on the H bridge. And then from the bottom side, those two ground. So what you can see is that we we have the four relays, and there are two conditions that we do not want. That is, we do not want our two relays on the left to be closed or activated at the same time, because then power goes from power, 12 volts, down to ground, 
and it, that tends to burn out our power supply and do nasty things to our uh, connection. It's called shoot through in DC to DC terminology. It's every place I've seen it. Yep, shoot through. And so same thing on the right side. We don't want both those right side relays to close at the same time or else we destroy those. But that being the case, we can see a couple of combinations. If we have the, if the upper left and the lower right relays turn off at the same time, then we have power coming into or 12 volts coming into the left uh, edge of the motor and the right edge of the motor is connected to ground and it will turn in one direction, let's say clockwise. And then if we turn those two uh, off and now we turn the lower left and the upper right relays on, then power comes in to the right side of the motor and we, the left side is connected to ground. And so now we've switched our connection, right? And so now the motor will turn counterclockwise. And so just by using transistors to, to switch those, uh, those relays, we can control which direction the motor turns. Would you ever turn both the uh, top and bottom on, you know, so it's connected to ground on both sides or power both sides? Would that be like braking? It would be, right. So if you, if you leave the all four off, that essentially is, is what they call free running uh, because you're not really doing anything. But if you turn both the top on, the, the two upper relays on, or the two lower relays on, uh, that's essentially braking because what you're doing is you're, you're funneling uh, the, this DC motor acts like a generator, right? If it's free spinning, uh, it, it, it will generate voltage uh, coming out just like you, you're trying to put voltage in. Uh, and it, it loops around and basically acts to counteract, you know, you're basically uh, feeding this voltage back into the system in such a way that it's, it's actively breaking itself instead of, uh, accelerating itself. So, uh, typically you'll, in an H, H bridge configuration, you will have a, a selection of these relays that it will be called braking, uh, in order to slow down the motor. Interesting. So it's like when you're in a car, you know, free wheeling would be shifting into neutral versus pressing the brake pedal. Right. And braking is a little like just putting the, the, uh, uh, the Current stick reverse. shift. Well, not reverse, but let's say, a, <laughs> let's say a lower gear and just the, and just the, uh, the, the friction, uh, and the inertia of the gearbox tends to slow the car down. Cool. Cool. So the other part of that is that the other thing that these transistors do are typically your, your Arduino, your, your Raspberry Pi, whatever. These devices are going to have a maximum output through any of the pins of like, you know, 20 milliamps, 40 milliamps, maybe a hundred milliamps, which is usually not enough to run, uh, to run a motor of any size. So again, the other purpose of the H bridge is now your 12 volt input and ground, and I, it could be 12 or anything else, but you know, whatever your, your source voltage is to your motor, that's independent of your Raspberry Pi or your Arduino. And now you can put as much, you know, a different battery, a different power source, whatever you need that, that is big enough and beefy enough uh, to run your motor, and that all passes through the H bridge instead of passing through your microcontroller. And when implemented, typically uh, these H bridges also require reasonably elaborate gate drive circuits because the upper FETs, if you can call them that, as a result of, or transistors as a result of uh, uh, stacking these guys, need to have voltages applied that are referenced to their sources so since these let's assume that the current return path of the motor current is on the dc ground or d ground of the uh, arduino 
you've got to find a way to say get a totally isolated voltage up to the other H bridge in order to turn it on and off because mm-hmm. those voltages are referenced to the source or the drain which is or the source which is on top of the other MOSFET which is a high impedance right it's it's really easy to draw really difficult to describe <laughs> right right so so the key is if you uh if you want to uh, get into driving a DC motor and you are a hobbyist and you want to get into the theory, there's nothing better than getting into designing your own H-bridge to figure out exactly what's going on. Because then you get to pick out the transistors and you get the snubber diodes and you get to do you know the, the FET design and pick out all these things Brian is talking about. If that's not your idea of a jolly time, certainly – there, there, there are any number of uh, commercial vendors, you know, the Smart Funds, Adafruits, uh, Palulu, uh, who will sell prepackaged H bridges uh, that will work just fine, and that way you don't have to spend your evenings uh, trying to sort out the the H bridge d- design. Also, it's one of those applications where it's really easy to blow up your Arduino. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get a few extra. Which the Ar- Arduino or H bridge? Both. Both. Okay. All right. So, so having covered that and given you an idea of, of if, if your main goal was, Hey, I just need to know how to make the motor turn. Uh, that's one way to do it. The other part, uh, the other element of that is now that you've controlled direction, how do you control speed? Uh, and typically, uh, these, the chips, uh, that will, that will do this for you. That is, there are chips called, uh, H-bridge chips, uh, the most popular, most widely known is the L298, uh, but there are any number of more modern, uh, more energy efficient chips out there, but they, they usually have an enable signal. And so for those of us that don't have a DAC on our controller, uh, instead of, you know, trying to vary the 12 volts down to 9 volts, down to 6 volts to control speed, uh, what you do is you take the enable signal and you feed it with a pulse width modulation or PWM signal. Uh, basically, what what does that mean is it is a square wave, essentially, of fixed duration. That is, you will have a cycle every ten thousandth of a second or every thousandth of a second, depending on what the, the frequency is. And then you're changing the duty cycle. That is, the percentage of the time this square wave is on and the percentage of the time uh, that it's off. And so if you have a 50% duty cycle, it's on 50% of the time and off uh, 50% of the time. 25% duty cycle, it's on 25%, off 75%. Uh, but the neat thing of this is that the motor is a beautiful low pass filter. Uh, and so assuming that your frequency is high enough on this pulse width modulation, and again, the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi can all put out these uh, PWM signals, then your motor interprets that as though it were getting some percentage of the voltage. So if you have your H bridge hooked up 12 volts, here, let's make it 10 volts so the math is easier for me. So you hook it up uh, and you've got 10 volts and you have a 50% duty cycle your motor will act as though you were feeding it a 5-volt signal. If you give it a 75% uh, duty cycle, your motor will act as though it were getting 7.5 volts, so on and so forth. This this wears out, this linearity, if you're below about 10%, you're above 90 or 95%, then this isn't quite so linear. But in the middle, uh, you can get pretty good speed control by using pulse width modulation, uh, just turning turning on and turning off that 12-volt signal to the motor at such a rapid rate that the motor interprets it as though you were giving it a constant input at a lower voltage. So when you run at PWM, uh, you know, when it's, you know, it's at a 50% duty cycle, so half the time you're at 5 volts, the uh, the other half the time you're at 
zero volts, is that turning mm-hmm. on both legs, you know, so you have your H bridge, you know, if you have the upper left and the, the lower right, is that turning both on and both off at the same time? So you have a brief period where you're freewheeling or does that depend on which flavor controller and whatever you buy, how they go about doing that? I haven't thought about that. I, I, what you're saying makes sense, but, but I'd have to look at the circuitry, uh, to know whether it's, it's freewheeling at the point where they have them both turned off. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would assume it would if it works like DC to DC converters. But if we go with the simplest, where you just have a motor from 12 volts with a transistor and then ground, that that's a little <laughs> easier to to picture right now. Right. So that's the that's the way that uh, you drive a motor, and you can again control speed uh, by hitting this enable signal, turning on turning on and off the switches at a rapid rate that uh, makes the motor think that it's getting a constant voltage. And, and almost all the, you know, almost all the small systems work that way, right? Nobody wants to spend the money for a DAC, uh, a digital analog converter. Those mm-hmm. tend to be spent. So everybody uses PWM, uh, making use of the fact that the, the motor is a nice low pass filter will filter out the, uh, the sharp corners. All right. So we'll talk a little bit about the, the specs, uh, and, and operation of the DC motor, uh, so uh, when you pick up a, a spec sheet for a DC motor, it will have a nominal voltage. You know, it'll say this is a five volt motor. It's a 12 volt motor. It's a 24 volt motor. Okay. There's nothing magical about that voltage. It is the voltage that was used to determine the published specifications. You can run a 12 volt motor at 14 volts. You can run a 12 volt motor at nine volts. Now there's some caveats to go with that. Uh, the biggest one is that you do not want to exceed the max current ratings. That is, there are windings, there are wires that are coiled in circles in this motor, and those wires, you can burn them up. And so if you exceed current rating, you are likely to burn up those uh, windings. So uh, the nominal voltage, although it's not, there's nothing magical about it, it's a good initial guess at an operating voltage. Uh, if you go too far above that, that is, you for a fixed resistance in the windings, you keep adding more and more voltage. Uh, you risk overheating the motor because of too much current. If you go too far below the nominal voltage, then you may not overcome the motor's internal friction. That is, if it's a 12-volt motor and you're trying to run it at one volt, that just not may not be enough oomph to overcome the friction that's in the system. You may not get the behavior that you want. Just run it very, very slowly. Right. Okay, so... So we're now we're now we're finally ready to get into the internal workings of the DC motor. So the DC motor functions on two fundamental principles. Uh, the first one is torque production. Uh, that is a current carrying conductor in a magnetic field induces an electromagnetic force on the conductor. Okay, so in order to produce torque, we need a magnetic field, and we need a conductor. doesn't have to be coiled. It could be a straight line, but we need a magnetic field. We need a conductor. And the, the second fundamental principle is back EMF. Electrical potential is generated across a conductor moving through a magnetic field. So what this means, what's going to happen here, and this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Brian, we uh, apply a, a voltage to a system. It's going to carry current through this conductor, the fact that these the charges are moving through a magnetic field will cause a force to be generated on the charges, 
which, and since we have a conductor, you know, it, it will act as though it's acting on the conductor that will produce the torque that we need. That is what the motor does. Now, the backside of that is as the motor starts to turn faster and faster, we have this secondary thing going on where you're passing a conductor through a magnetic field. As, I mean, that's what we, you know, we needed the magnetic field to generate the torque. Now that we're generating the torque, we're passing this conductor that's spinning in a magnetic field and it produces a back EMF. It acts like a generator. And it happens that that back EMF opposes the voltage that we're putting in. So uh, first thing is, uh, when we say back EMF, that EMF is electromagnetic force. And despite what it sounds like, that is not a mechanical force. That is voltage. So we're going to apply voltage to move current through the conductor. That creates torque. That makes it go faster. But as it goes faster, we generate more back EMF that cancels out the voltage we're putting in. And so when you apply a voltage to a motor, it will speed up until it gets to some steady state voltage and it will stick there. Uh, and that amount of uh, the place where it sticks is depending upon the friction of the motor, the load that you have on it, as well as the amount of back EMF that is generated by the configuration of the motor. So back to the a bit of nomenclature again. We talked earlier about the stator being the stationary part and the rotor being the rotating part. Because we have a we need a magnetic field and we need a conductor, the terms we use for the stator and rotor are sort of mechanical terms. For the electrical system, the part that carries the current through the magnetic field, we call that the armature. And the part that generates the magnetic flux that we need for the magnetic field is called the field system or field. And the confusing part is that uh, depending on what type of motor you're looking at, the armature can be on the stator or the armature can be on the rotor. The field can be on the stator. The field can be on the rotor. That's not cool. When we talk about armature, we're talking about the, the current carrying part of the system. The field or field system is the magnetic flux producing part of our motor. So you have to learn where each one of them are for uh, your individual applications. It's not just one set. Here you go. Memorize this diagram. Right. So, so typically a brush DC motor, the armature is on the rotor. And typically on a brushless DC motor, the armature is on the stator. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. I couldn't remember that. Okay. So to understand where we get this, this, uh, this torque from, we need to understand uh, that a charge moving through, uh, through space uh, may be subject to electrical or magnetic fields. And there's a, an equation uh, associated or, or attributed to Lorentz. Uh, we call it Lorentz force. Uh, and it is this this uh, force, physical force this time, that's created on a charge when it man when it goes through a an electrical field or magnetic field. And for the most part, with it, we're not, this is not a cap capacitor, right? So we don't have it really generated intentionally. We've not gener generated an electrical field. We've been ge generated magnetic fields. Yep. So anytime you anytime you move a charge, you create a you create a magnetic field. Yeah, I'm trying to process that. Yeah, anytime, anytime electrons are moving, uh, a, magnetic, a magnetic field is, is produced. And it's the magnetic fields that interact, if I remember correctly. Okay. Well, so uh, the – I'm trying to think. So we're putting a – we've got a charge moving through a magnetic field, and the fact that it's moving, it means it – we're really not talking about the charge moving through the magnetic field, but the two magnetic fields 
interacting that causes the force. Mm-hmm. Hey, yes. okay, cool. So this force uh, is proportional to the charge velocity, how fast it's moving. Hint, that's going to lead us toward current and acts in a direction that is a cross product of the velocity of the charge. Again, the velocity associated with current, charge moving so fast, current, and the magnetic field B. So uh, some of you may remember from physics, the right-hand rule, you know, you get uh, you get the current moving in one direction and then you curl your fingers in the direction of the magnetic uh, flux uh, and your thumb will be pointing in the direction of the force that's generated on that that charge. The point of this is that if we if we put a simple wire in a magnetic field and pass a current through it, the force on that wire, in fact, there's, I've seen on YouTube, there, there are videos where wires lift up, you know, they, they seemingly magically levitate themselves within this magnetic field by doing nothing more than passing current through them. The force acting on it is proportional to the current flowing through that conductor. All right. So now let's imagine we have a winding and we'll imagine that the winding is much longer than it is wide. So we have, you know, a long wind, a long straight on one side, a short end where we, it rotates on the other end, a long back to us. We close the circuit. And so we feed it, you know, there'll be some resistance in this winding. We feed it a voltage. The current goes down one way, right? Because the current is going in one direction, it will have a, depending on the magnetic field, up or down force, let's say up. On the right, let's say we've got left and right conductors as we look from the end. On the right-hand side, let us suppose that the force goes up because the con- the current is going away from us. And on the left-hand side, the current is coming towards us. So the current is in the other direction. So if we do the right-hand rule, now the force is going to be down. So if we let this coil, this single coil, rotate around its midpoint, its longitudinal axis, on one side, force is lifting it up. The other side, force is pushing it down. Assuming that we've got a symmetric coil about the midpoint, we'll generate a torque that's going to be equal to the force up times whatever uh, the radius is on both sides. So it'll be two times that R radius times whatever the force is acting upward. Okay. So now we see that not only is the force proportional to the current, but the torque generated by this single loop is proportional to the current. And as it turns out, without getting into the, you know, the, the details, this continues to be true as we add not just one loop, but many, many loops and many, many windings. In general, the torque that the motor produces is directly proportional to the current that passes through those windings. And so that current we call the armature current and the ratio between that current and the torque that the motor produces, we have some factor that, you know, is the slope of this ratio we call the torque constant, or usually it's K sub T. Uh, and so if you look on a motor spec sheet, you will normally find that value listed. Ah, so that's in the torque curves. You can figure out the torque constant from that. Okay. Let me for my class now. <laughs> okay. So here we get, so now we, let's get to the bit about the, what's different about brushed and brushless. So, so if you imagine that we have our, our loop, and it rotates about the center axis. As it made the first loop, right, we, we had our, our magnetic field, let's say we had magnets top and bottom on this thing. So our, our north and south poles, top and bottom, our, our uh, conductors were left and right, and so we've applied a voltage, we get a current. The wires are attracted towards the magnets, 
the north, whatever, you know, south pole attracts north and north, uh, uh, north pole south. And so we get, so now the wire is vertical, you know, instead of left and right wires, now we have top and bottom wires because they've rotated 90 degrees. Well, now, now those wires are attracted to the poles. Now they're kind of stuck, right? We can, we, we can keep applying current, but, and, but the force now, the force is pointing directly into the, the magnets. There's, there's no torque anymore. We're just pulling vertically and, and, you know, up and down on those wires. So the problem now we need, you know, how do we generate torque again? Well, we can introduce, let's say we get a, another winding. So at this point, we introduce another pair of wires left and right. So we have the ones we started with that are top and bottom right next to the magnets. But, and we have another set left and right. But the problem is that we need to turn off the ones that are top and bottom because no matter what additional force we get, now we're, we're having to overcome as we start to, you know, as we start to turn the thing anymore, those, those magnets or those wires top and bottom want to go back to the magnets. So we need some way to turn off the first set of wires at the same time we turn on the second set of wires. So it was Sturgeon who came up with the idea of commutation. And so we know we have the shaft, that is the rotor, that we want to have continue rotating. So Sturgeon came up with the idea of uh, taking a basically a copper ring and putting it on the shaft and then taking this ring and splitting it into segments. Uh, and as an elementary example, let us consider four segments uh, that we will uh, number A, B, C, and D. And so... If we have two wires, two windings that we want to connect, uh, we might connect winding one to copper segments A and C and winding number two to segments B and D. And we'll consider that A and C are uh, essentially positioned 180 degrees across from one another uh, on the shaft. And then uh, B and D are similarly uh, located 180 degrees uh, across, symmetrically opposed to one another across the shaft. So we've connected winding number one to A and C, winding number two to B and D, and we bring in what we call brushes from either side. These are uh, uh, devices that can bring in voltage and ride on top of these copper segments, the commutation. And so we would have, uh, from our battery, we'd have voltage to come into one brush, uh, let's say, and contact copper segment A. And that would deliver voltage to the first winding. And so current would flow through the first winding out to copper segment C, at which point that would be from the other brush, that voltage would be connected back to ground on the battery. And so we'd have a positive voltage through the first winding. And so uh, hopefully we'd wired this up in such a way that we got a positive force uh, that caused it to turn. Let's say that we want it to turn clockwise and we, we got a clockwise torque and the device turned, uh, clockwise. Now, once this shaft had turned 90 degrees, the brushes don't rotate. The brushes are, are staying in the same place. And so, uh, after 90 degrees, the brushes no longer contact copper segments A and C. They contact segments B and D. We've disconnected voltage from our first winding and now connected voltage to our second winding because B and D are now connected to the second winding. And so now we get hopefully force in the right direction, continued positive torque that continues this shaft to turn in the, in the 
clockwise direction. And so now we turn another 90 degrees. And so at this point, uh, we now have our, now our contact, our positive voltage, uh, comes in not to A, but to C. And the ground is now connected to A because we've turned 180 degrees from where we started. And now we're putting voltage in the opposite direction through the first winding. But at this point, right, we've turned 180 degrees, but that's, so that's what we need. We've, we are now rotated within our, um, magnetic field. And so now in order to continue to generate torque in the right direction and to continue clockwise rotation, we've now accomplished that. Uh, and now the shaft will turn another 90 degrees and now positive voltage will be applied to segment D, uh, and come out to ground at segment B. And so again, through the second segment, uh, we've correctly assigned these, uh, uh, these currents to generate the forces, to generate the torque, to continue the system turning in the clockwise direction. And then it turns another 25 or another 90 degrees, another quarter turn. And we are once again to where we started uh, at the beginning of the cycle with positive voltage being applied to segment A and ground as segment C. Uh, and so uh, once again, passing current through the first winding. And so by doing this through this idea of commutation, we have a means of getting the motor to continue to turn in the same direction without getting stuck uh, at some point because of this need to switch polarity going through the windings. Is this a way you can fix your, um, like your garbage disposal too? Like every now and again, all the poles and commutators and everything line up such that it won't start when you flick the switch. But if you go underneath with a screwdriver, you can kind of like knock everything just out of alignment <laughs> so it kicks back on again. <laughs> Yeah, a stalled rotor. I, I'm, I'm guess I'm guessing that that's an AC motor, well, not probably. A DC motor. But it, you know, I, I've heard that you can do that. I, I've never actually had it happen to me, but I imagine, you know, there's a possibility of it. This was in my train wreck of a mechatronics course, so I'm just repeating what I said. I could be <laughs> okay. way off. All right, maybe so. I'm not familiar with that one. Um, so, uh, so this is the basic idea behind uh, the brushed and brushless. A brushed motor ha actually has brushes, uh, physical devices that carry the voltage into the windings. And so these brushes can be like metal springs. They may be just like, like you know, they'll look like a, a paper clip that's just been bent to rub against the commutator, this ring that has slits in it uh, that assigns the correct voltage to the correct winding at the right time. Uh, they may be uh, precious metal. Uh, that is, they may be silver or gold. If you do that, then you'll spend more money because they're more expensive. Uh, but they're less noisy, most less electrical noisy than the carbon uh, graphite brushes. Uh, but they also pass less current. Uh, copper graphite brushes, and the, we call them brushes, but oftentimes they're like a big shoe, you know, just a big shoe with a curved section on it that rubs against the, the commutator. <clears throat> and these copper graphite brushes tend to be cheaper, carry more current, but also produce more noise. I'm also pretty sure that one of the reasons you want to use graphite is it's inherently self-lubricating. The graphite. I don't know if that. I don't know if that's true, but I think it is. Uh, depending on the material, I would I would guess that uh, that to be the case. So the, the the problem in either case is these are very simple to make. I mean, once you figured out, you know. You've, you design the commutator so you know where the slits have to be so that you, you know, where the brushes have to be. And usually the brushes come in at 180 degrees opposed from one another. Um, so these are cheap to make, but the brushes wear out. Okay. Which means that if you, if, if you're running a, a cheap toy, that's not a big deal. If you're 
putting it into production in an industrial plant, you have to replace the brushes on a regular basis. Also, these brushes generate friction that you don't have with other types of motors. They generate electrical noise. They generate acoustical noise because you're, you know, these things are constantly hitting uh, the commutator and they will limit the amount of maximum voltage. There's only, only so much voltage you can deliver through a rubbing connection, right? This is not like it's a solid weld or a solder joint. This is a rubbing connection. So there's a limit to how much voltage you can pass uh, through the system and hence how much current you can deliver to the windings. Keeping me with you so far. Good job, Jeff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Um, so now we get to the magnetic field. So you can, essentially, we need a magnetic field and you can generate one of two basic ways. That is, you either create an electromagnet, you know, winding, run current through it, or you use a permanent yes, magnet. Yes, I think I remember this Roadrunner cartoon. You put the metal powder in the bird <laughs> seed and you hope for the best with a big magnet. That's it. That's it. So uh, the, the cheapest and most commonly used DC motors uh, are permanent magnet uh, motors. That is, we use a permanent magnet in order to create the magnetic field. Uh, and these are often, you'll see them notated as PMDC for permanent magnet DC. So if we do that, then in a, a typical brushed permanent magnet DC motor, the rotor, the part that's rotating, is going to have windings. That is, we've, we've made our loops sophisticated enough that they, we have an, uh, a, usually it's a steel core. Uh, the core there being, why is the core there? It's there because the, the ferrous material uh, is, is, uh, allows the magnetic field that we've generated to easily pass through it. And therefore, it doesn't, the magnetic field doesn't decay as it's getting to the windings, which is something we want. It also gives a certain amount of inertia. It keeps things going. And so we have the, the, uh, the rotor has the windings. It has the, the core. Uh, and then on the outside, the, the stator, the part that doesn't move in most brush DC motors is the permanent magnet. That is, You'll typically, if you open up a DC magnet, you'll see a, a, the north magnet on one side, and typically these things are curved, uh, so that the the you know they've got an arc. They they're not flat. They have an arc, top and bottom, uh, and so you have the north uh, magnet and the south magnet, and those create the magnetic field that is used to generate power. Okay, so we have we have the stator with the magnets. We have the rotor with the windings. We know that the torque that is generated is proportional to the current that flows through the windings, and we assume the windings uh, have a fixed resistance. They have a certain amount of inductance too, but generally that's so small we can ignore that. And then as the motor starts to speed up, we start getting more and more of this back EMF. Uh, and this, So this is like a, a voltage that opposes the voltage we're putting into the system. So as it turns out, the back EMF, the voltage that is opposing, is not proportional to current, but it's proportional to speed. So our, as our motor starts to speed up, we get this uh, back voltage, this back EMF. Uh, and as it turns out, the we'll typically call this constant, the relationship between this voltage and the rotational speed of our system, to be K 
sub B or K sub EMF. The notations are different. But as it turns out, if you put it in SI units, KT that we talked about, the torque constant, and KB, the back EMF constant, are exactly the same. What? What? You're yeah. bullshitting me. Uh, I wish I was. Stop the podcast. We're, we can't be <laughs> wise like this. So anyway, uh, you again, you can typically, if you have a good spec sheet, you can look up these numbers. Uh, and, and and sometimes they'll invert the numbers. The spec sheets are, are a mess in the sense that no two manufacturers seem to present the numbers in the same way. But here here is the big thing is... When you're trying to pick out a motor, how do you pick out how big the motor is to be, right? So always bigger. Always bigger is better. So if you uh, if you're familiar with like uh, internal combustion engines, you know that if you look at a torque speed curve, you're you have low torque when the motor is going slow, when the engine's going slow, and you you have reach a peak torque somewhere at mid speed, and then when you get too much faster, then the torque starts to go back down. That's why we have gearboxes. Uh, in, in, in cars because we want to keep shifting in order to keep ourselves near the center of that, you know, peak torque, uh, that we've got in a DC motor. If you put, uh, I'll put torque on the vertical axis, the Y axis and speed on the horizontal axis. And you can, you'll, we'll pick a point on the torque axis and we'll call that stall torque. And that's so that's the torque that the motor generates when it has no speed whatsoever. And we'll draw a straight line, a perfectly straight line down and to the right until it intersects the x axis, the speed axis. And that point we'll call the no load speed. And so that relationship, that line between the two is fixed for a given input voltage. So if you give it the 12 volts, you've established this line between the torques, the uh, stall torque and the no load speed, the two points that uh, the straight line intersects. Now, is that the, that's not just the voltage across the motor, that's the equivalent DC voltage. Like if you're doing PWM, it's not 12 volts, it's six. It, it, okay. Yeah, so so if you did PWM at 50% duty cycle and your, and your H-bridge voltage was 12 volts, then you're, system would act as though you were feeding at six volts. Gotcha. Gotcha. And if you adjust the duty cycle and went up to eight. Okay. I get you. Right. So, so here's the, the hard part is that people look at the stall torque, which seems to be a, normally a big number and they go, okay, this thing has a stall torque of, you know, I, I don't know what units we want to use inch pounds, ounce, uh, feet, you know, whatever, whatever the most confusing ones are. <laughs> Newton Newton meters here we'll stick with we'll stick with for long hog heads. <laughs> well, well, we'll stick to Newton meters. We'll stick in metric. So we we've got a certain amount of, of uh, torque, and so we read this we read this number off the chart, and it says our stall torque is X Newton meters. And people read that and they go, oh well, I guess I can run this at X Newton meters in continuous operation. No. Or they they go down the line to where it crosses the X axis and they see I've got a no load speed of 10,000 RPM. I guess I can get this thing to operate all the time at 10,000 RPM. That's a no load speed. Yes, you can get it there at no load, but you start putting it on any load, it's not going to operate there. So uh, the first thing to understand is that stall torque is a test parameter, not the torque you should expect during 
continuous operation. So if we think about the, the basic law, right, the torque is proportional to current, then we apply our voltage, let's say 12 volts. The motor's not turning when we start, so there's no back EMF. So we, we take the 12 volts, we divide by the resistance of our windings, and whatever that current happens to be, it's the most current we're going to get with 12 volts. Well, we get a lot of torque, right? Torque is proportional to, to current, so we have lots of torque. The most we're ever going to get, that's the stall torque, and it starts, the, the motor starts to rotate. And as it starts to, it starts to accelerate because torque is equal to uh, rotational moment of inertia times acceleration. So the motor, if we have positive torque, it will start to accelerate in the positive direction. It'll start to accelerate. Well, guess what? As we start to accelerate, we start to move down that curve from the upper left down towards the lower right. If we have no load on it, right? We, we have no load on the motor, just the shaft sticking out. It'll pass down that line all the way till it gets to the no load speed. At which point it'll be turning very, very fast, but it can't produce any torque, right? So if we have some sort of load on it, then, then it will start to come down and it will, uh, as the, as the motor speeds up, we start to move down that line and eventually we'll get to the point where friction in the system is enough and the load that the, uh, as we have some rotational load that we're turning, that takes away from the motor torque. And so we end up somewhere along that line, we end up at a balance point, and that is our steady state speed. It, the, the, it will quit accelerating somewhere mid, mid line, and it will stay at that speed. And then if we change the voltage, then what we've done is we've shifted that line upward into the right or downward into the left, parallel to the line as it previously was. And again, we'll get a shift in speed as the system seeks a steady state equilibrium. Okay, so we have our torque speed diagram, upper left, stall torque, lower right, no load speed. Well, where along there do we want to be? I mean, yes, theoretically, we can be anywhere on that line, but where do we want to be? So two things to think about. One is, by definition, power is rotational power is torque times rotational speed. So at any one point, we can take the area, you know, we, we find a, a point on that line and we go to the left and we'll find a torque reading and we go down and we'll find a speed, rotational speed reading and we multiply torque times rotational speed and that's the power. So when we're up at the upper left near the north, uh, no, I'm sorry, that's stall torque. If we're just off of that a little bit, then we, we have a lot of torque, but we go down to speed. We have like no speed. Right. So our power, our, our product torque times speed is not very big. And if we go all the way down to the right to the, to the, um, no load speed, then we have a big speed. But if we go across, our torque is not very tall on the y axis. So again, we, as we multiply those two together, we don't have much power. The point at which we get the most power is right smack dab in the middle. So we get the most power is when we're at half the stall torque, and half the no-load speed. So if our goal is to rapidly accelerate a, a vehicle or rapidly move something, we want to deliver as much power as we possibly can through that motor, then that's where we want to be. We want to be at half of the stall torque and half of the no-load speed. That would maximize power 
generated by that motor. Sounds remarkably similar to uh, max power transfer with resistor dividers, <laughs> where if you want, uh, you know, you have 12 volts or 10 volts and you want to get the most power to your load with a resistor divider, you need a divide by two where you're at half the, you know, 1K and 1K and you take the output from the middle, you get the most power. Right. And, and we'll get there in a little bit about talking about matching inertias. We'll have an inertia for the motor and an inertia for the load. And again, if you want to maximize power transfer, you match the inertias. It's almost like these things are governed by like really similar differential equations. Hmm. It, it is amazing. It's like nature had this all figured out. All right. So if you don't want to have max power, and obviously, if you have, say, a, ma- a battery-operated device, you probably don't want to be at max power operation. You'd like to s- conserve power. Where should you be? So I guess the first rule of thumb is that the area of maximum efficiency is generally closer to the no-load speed. That is, if you have a no-load speed of 10,000 RPM or 1,000 RPM, whatever it is, then typically somewhere like, if it's 1,000, then somewhere in the range of like eight to 900 RPM is probably max efficiency as, as in terms of input power, electrical power to mechanical power out. Uh, so typically you want to be running your motor at fairly high speed to, uh, to get maximum efficiency. Uh, if you want to be running to get a reasonable amount of power without overheating the motor, because remember when you're max power, that's also max current. Well, it's not max, you can get higher, but, but you, you know, you can overheat the windings. So generally manufacturers recommend designing continuous operation to be or continuous torque to be in the range of half to one third the stall torque. Uh, and some manufacturers even say like an eighth of the stall torque, uh, although they're being pretty conservative. So if you, if you have to pick out a motor, you can look for the stall torque, look for the no load speed, but remember that you're going to, you're not going to be operating it either. You want to probably for max efficiency, be operating close to the no load speed, uh, and away from uh, your torque considerably below the stall torque. Okay, so the next problem we have to face is that let's say that we have a motor that does 8,000 RPM. Which isn't insane. Which No, that's that's not unreasonable. You know, I'm not, I'm not kidding about these small motors. 1,000 to 10,000 RPM is the range oftentimes they want to turn. Mm-hmm. But that, but often mechanically, we want, we want like a hundred RPM or 10 RPM. We don't want something. So what do you do? Well, you run it through a gearbox. So, uh, we'll very quickly mention here gearboxes because oftentimes you can buy a DC motor that already has the gearbox attached and it typically will be called a gear motor. So there are two main types of gear motors. Uh, when you, when you look at the gear motor and you can tell that the output shaft is offset from the motor center line, it is almost certainly a spur gear gearbox. That is, you know, you have a ring uh, with the, uh, like a, the, the teeth sticking out. Uh, you have two gears that are like that. You've meshed them together. And of course, when you mesh them together, the center lines are not the same. And so a spur gearbox, they tend to be uh, larger. They tend to operate at lower speeds. Uh, they tend to have higher backlash, but why do we like them? Because they have lower cost. They're just very simple to make, right? So if if you just need a certain, you know, a fairly low uh, ratio of motor speed to to shaft speed, then a spur gear will get you there. 
Uh, more traditionally, though, if you need higher ratios, then you'll you'll end and the output shaft is on the same line as the motor, then you have a planetary gear train. So, uh, the planetary gear trains have you know the uh, the, the the sun and the planets and the ring gear, and uh, we talked previously uh, about gearing in another episode, uh, so we won't revisit that. But uh, the nice thing about, about planetary, they're smaller. They have a higher load capacity. They have a higher operating speed. They have less backlash. Mm-hmm. They have higher efficiency. There's everything to like about it. What don't we like about it? They cost more. Okay. So if you need a higher ratio that is above, say, 10 to 1, 13 to 1, you're probably going to end up with a planetary gear set as opposed to a spear, uh, spur gear motor. Uh, when you buy those, you will typically find that the, the gears may be plastic they may be ceramic or they may be metal. Uh, they all work, but uh, there's a reason why plastic is cheap, right? So uh, either you can either overheat and deform those plastic gears, or if you have a, <clears throat> a lot of uh, shock loads, you can deform them. Same thing with ceramic. Ceramic works great uh, unless you have really severe shock loads, in which case you can uh, crack up, chip, chip it. it. Uh, metal, of course, is the sort of the gold standard, uh, no pun intended, but they're, it's the most expensive. So when you purchase, if you buy a gearbox, uh, or, or a, a gear motor, uh, just be aware you have these options, but you're, you're paying for a certain amount of robustness, uh, in the system. So what does, what does this, uh, gear motor do for us? Well, basically, if we go back to our torque speed curve, and we we consider we we had a, snow, a stall torque uh, on the upper left, and we had a no load speed. What we're going to do is we're going to take that line, and now we're going to start dragging the torque curve up. And of course, if you figure that line to be the same length, then along the bottom axis, the speed is going to the no load speed is going to come down. And that's essentially what a gearbox does. We trade sp- torque for speed, and so it's proportional to the gear ratio of our gearbox. And so if we have a 10 to 1 gear ratio, whatever our stall torque was, is will go up by a factor of 10. And whatever our no load speed was, will go down by a factor of 10. So if we had a if we had a motor that wanted to turn at a thousand RPM, the motor turns at a thousand RPM, but the output shaft of the gearbox turns 10 times slower at or at a hundred RPM, which may be closer to what we're looking for. So, uh, as I mentioned before, when we do this, we have to worry about the inertia. That is, how big a load are we attaching to the end of our motor, or in this case, the end of our gearbox. <clears throat> you can imagine that if you have a, a small motor and you have a huge, let's say, a 14-foot diameter concrete cylinder you're trying to turn, well, that, that little teeny tiny motor will produce torque. And if, since uh, torque equals rotational inertia times acceleration, since the rotational inertia is large, there will be some acceleration, but it'll be very, very s- slow, right? So that little motor may eventually get that thing up to speed, but it may take days to get there. On the other hand, if we have a huge honking motor and we have this teeny tiny little system, a little load on the end of it, that doesn't make any sense because basically all the energy that we're using is going to turn the inertia 
of the motor and none of it's being transferred to the load, which is the purpose of having the motor there in the first place is we want to transfer power into the load. Hmm. So what we want to do is we want to find a good match of the inertia of the motor. That is, it has to turn itself, right? The, the motor will produce torque, but it has to turn itself because that, that armature and those windings aren't massless. They have some weight and therefore there's some inertia uh, to that. So it turns out that when we go through that gearbox, we don't just reduce the inertia of the load by N, the ratio of the gearbox, but by N squared. It's beautiful. So the inertia seen by the motor will be its own inertia plus whatever inertia comes from the gearbox. But we take the inertia of the load and we divide it by N squared, that gearbox ratio squared. What this means is we play this off, right, against one another. So we play off selecting the gearbox such that we get the speed that we want, but we also want to get some matching of the inertias. And so as I mentioned earlier, uh, if you want to maximize power, you want a one-to-one ratio between your load, your reflected load inertia, that is the the load the motor sees from your load, and its own inertia. And so while this one-to-one matching of reflected and motor inertias minimizes starting and stopping times because you're delivering power most quickly, you may need to find a need for other ratios. That is, maybe it isn't power you're looking for, but uh, you know, relatively quick positioning or quick velocity changes. And so uh, in general, we try to keep the ratio, if not one to one, less than 10 to one. So say less than two to one for quick positioning, less than five to one for moderate positioning, less than 10 to one uh, for quick velocity changes. We may not be able to match it exactly, but we want to keep it in the ballpark. Uh, Again, why? Because we generally want to minimize the motor inertia. That is the inertia of the armature and that stuff. Uh, So we're not wasting energy turning the rotor of the motor. But if the gear ratio uh, that we go through is too high, then what we've done is we've caused the reflected load inertia, that, that load inertia divided by R squared, to be less than the motor inertia. And then the the majority of the input power is going into rotating the motor and not the load. On the other hand, if we get the gearbox ratio wrong, it's too low, then the reflected inertia that is coming from the load is going to be much, much greater than the motor inertia. And so the motor is limited in its ability to quickly start and stop, uh, resulting in poor dynamic response. So again, when we pick out the gear ratio, we're doing this balancing act between getting the right speed but also matching up inertia so the motor motor is able to reasonably quickly accelerate and decelerate the load. All right, so that sort of covers the the basics of the brush DC motor and the variation where we attach a gearbox to it. Uh, Do you want to hear any more about uh, brushless or stepper motors? I'll give you the, the nickel tour. How about that? Sure. Okay, so for... Brushless motors, we need some way to get rid of the brushes, right? They cause friction. They cause noise. They, uh, they're heavy, you know, they, they heavier. We can't deliver enough current through them. So here's what we do in a brushless motor. The armature 
is now part of the stator. That is, the windings we're going to pass current through are now on the stationary part. And we're going to take the permanent magnets and we're going to attach them to the rotor. You can do it either with the permanent magnets inside of the windings on the stator or inside or outside. So we've gotten rid of the commutator. So now we need to know, we need two things. We, We need some way of delivering current to the windings that are on the stator, not the rotor. And we need to know when to turn these things on and off. Because again, you have to do it in the right series to get the thing to keep turning in the right direction. So a brushless motor achieves commutation electronically. And typically the way it's done is we have those permanent magnets on the rotor turning. So as the rotor turns, we put a Hall effect sensor below those magnets. And a Hall effect sensor will give you a signal when a mag- uh, when that Hall effect uh, sensor sees a moving magnetic field. So as the rotor turns, the Hall effect sensor says, hey, I see something happening above me, a change in magnetic field. It must be time to turn on winding, you know, A. And so we now, instead of having brushes attached you know, through the winding, we actually physically create something that looks so, something like an H bridge, you know, a circuitry that turns on the power to windings. I'm going to assume three phases here to the A windings and all the A windings light up and create a magnetic field. And then when the rotor turns a little more and the next Hall effect sensor says, Hey, it's time for the B windings. Then our controller shuts down the A windings, turns on the B windings and the rotor is attracted to the next state. Uh, and then we repeat that for the C windings and then repeat the cycle. So what that means is that we are going to electronically control the commutation when the windings are turned on and turned off. Because there's no brush, we can put more current through. Uh, we get more efficient operation. We don't have the noise. The downside is we we need more electronics. Uh, we need the Hall effect or something to to check position of the rotor. But we do get we do get you know uh, lower noise, better heat dissipation, uh, better performance. So uh, the biggest thing is 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 maintenance. You don't have to replace brushes on a brushless and DC motor. You know one thing you can do with brushless. I think that's a little bit easier. I think to do than with mm-hmm. other types of DC motors is to hold something in a static position to. Um, you know, especially mm-hmm. if you have some sort of force pushing on something, um, it's it's. I think it's a little bit difficult to stall a commutated, to intentionally stall a commutated DC motor. So, in in positioning and motor control applications, where you're not spinning at a fixed rate, so you're moving something on a linear stage or something, uh, that's something you often do. You basically like. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like CNC machines, you know, you'll typically move someplace and then stop and hold that position. Right. And that is not done by simply turning the motor off. You know, the loops are still active and you're still putting as much current through the motor as is required to keep it in that spot. So if with, with a, a brushed motor, you're going to be at zero speed. So you'd have, you would have max holding torque. Now, whether you could hold that without overheating the windings, I don't know. 
that's that's to the that's the point I'm making. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, brushless is g- gaining a lot of of uh, popularity. You know, it's it's they're getting bigger. They're getting controls are getting easier. You can buy chips now to do the controls as opposed to having some big box. Uh, that you need. And so I think it's eating uh, somewhat into the uh, the market that AC motors used to have, although AC motors are also making their uh, control systems easier. Uh, and, and let me just quickly mention the, uh, the last of the, or another popular version of the brushless motor, and that is the stepper. And in a stepper, instead of sort of continually moving the magnetic poles to keep things rotating, you basically light up the magnetic poles to get the rotor, which again may, depending on the configuration, there's several different ways, styles of uh, stepper motors. But basically, you you light up a certain combination of the windings to create a magnetic field, and the system will step. That is, that the the rotor will turn to align with that magnetic field, and then you stop, and then you give it another step. You you switch the magnetic field, the windings on the outside. So the magnetic poles change a little more, and then the rotor will turn a little more. Uh, but what you're basically doing is at you you determine the rate at which you're going to give these pulses, and then you just count the pulses. That is, if I want the system to uh, typically, you know, a, a step will be like a one and a half degrees. If I want to move 15 degrees, I just give it 10 pulses. There's no feedback in this system, so you're not measuring did it actually get there. You're just assuming that you gave it 10 pulses, it moved 15 degrees. Uh, and so uh, if, if you're able to design your system so that you're confident that the torque generated by the stepper motor is sufficient to make it turn, that there's no slippage in there, that, that is, there's not such a huge load torque that when you told it to turn, it, it didn't have enough oomph, uh, to make that, uh, rotor turn, uh, as you expected. That's a problem, obviously. But assuming you, you have your system that can do it and many, many printers, uh, and, uh, you know, movement devices this is what they use instead of instead of having a motor and having some sort of uh, encoder on the back end of it to count how many pulses of rev- uh, rotation you have just make the actuator digital that is tell us to go 10 steps you assume you go this a certain number of degrees per step uh, and then you there you are you don't have to uh you don't have to mess with the feedback they're also particularly fun when you uh have long uh linear positioners with brushless with uh, stepper motors because typically they're operating in the, you know, 500 hertz to probably three or four kilohertz range. So they sing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. There's, I believe there's videos on YouTube of people actually playing music through stepper motors. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so part, part of it is it, you can imagine that every time you create a new step, the, the electrical magnetic field sets up very quickly. But now you have the inertia of this, of the rotor that doesn't want to go immediately, right? So it, it reluctantly, you know, picks up speed and then goes towards the new magnetic field. But now it, it hits that magnetic field and it's going to start to overshoot it. It's got inertia. So it starts to overshoot it. And then it realizes, you know, the magnetic field is enough to pull it back. And so it sits there and it, it, oscillates. So every time you make a step, you get a certain amount of oscillation of the output shaft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suspect, I don't know that for sure, but I suspect that's why you're getting the, uh, the singing, uh, phenomena. So step steppers are not, uh, not great for if you need smooth motion or, or velocity control. Uh, but if you just need it to get from point A to point B with the minimum of, of extra components, then 
then it works pretty well. That's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up. Okay. Well, that sounds uh, fair enough. That's uh, that's certainly not everything about DC motors, but... Uh, oh, no, no, no. It's probably just a basic primer. <laughs> but uh, uh, perhaps we've given some given our listeners an idea of uh, where to uh, where to look if they're new to the world of DC motors. Uh, again, you can go and, and any one of these subjects, you want to look at, you know, windings, how to wind and what pattern to wind. There are papers and books and uh, all kinds of stuff on that. You want to look at, uh, you know, the the nuances of, of winding ratios or you want to look at, at uh, permanent or, or rare earth magnets and which magnets to use and which combination uh, or you want to, you know, which motor design you should use for best performance on a quadcopter. You know, any one of these, you could spend days and days uh, searching through all the literature that's online. But since we don't have days and days, uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll say that we've, uh, we've done enough. And uh, we'll say thank you to our listeners. And uh, we'll look to be back in another couple of weeks with another episode of the Engineering Commons. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Right. Take care. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson. <laughs>